I just remember, yeah, the teachers all loved us. And then a lot of the other kids would be like, you guys are kind of teacher's pets, which we weren't trying to. We just showed up on time and did the work. That's like, that's most of life is show up and do your work. Welcome to Decision Point, a podcast about overcoming adversity in sales and the growth that we experience in the process. I'm Brad Siemens. Joining Brad on today's episode of Decision Point is Rebecca Panapinto. Rebecca is the Enterprise Account Executive with Zoom. Rebecca also hosts her own podcast, The Rebecca Panapinto Project. To find out more about Rebecca, head on over to her webpage, RebeccaPanapinto.com. We're good there. So, so tell me a little bit. I saw you went to Grand Canyon State. So are you from out west? Are you from Arizona? So born and raised in Phoenix, but when I was 19, I had an amazing opportunity to move to Nashville, Music City, and pursue being a rock star. I play the drums. And so an amazing opportunity dropped my lap lap, literally as I was in my last year of my undergrad. And I was like, "Uh, mom and dad, I got to go. This is too good. And it was basically an opportunity to be an au pair, live a nanny, but then have flexibility to go on the road on the weekends and play drums. So packed up, moved to Nashville, and finished my last like 10 classes online with Grand Canyon, and then was there for a total of about 10 years before I had an opportunity for career growth here in New York City. And I've been now in the greater New York City area, New York, New Jersey, for about two and a half years. So are you, so how long did you drum, now how long did you drum for, and then did you drum for anybody that we'd, rec- that we'd know or recognize? <laughs> They're pretty niche people, but let's see, I've been playing drums now 18 years and the 10 in Nashville was when I was what I call semi-pro because I still always had a day job and played for a lot of artists that are known like in their niche little communities of like American Idol and like rock scene, pop scene and country scenes in Nashville or like the singer songwriter thing, but not like super mainstream. The last big show I did was with a relatively big artist and we opened with an audience of 10,000 people. <laughs> I signed autographs. It was like a high I'd never had before. I was like, this is it. I've made it. And then I got paid $150. Mm. And that was the <laughs> end of my drum career. <laughs> so what's um, the, okay. So I guess you don't have to talk much further about why there was a transition from drumming to, <laughs> to sales, but what was that process like? Well, I took a good break. So I didn't touch drums for a year and basically was just like, okay, finishing school is the focus. Now what do I want to be when I grow up? And for me, the decision was very much money-based to start. Literally like I do for anything when I start dreaming, Googled best paying jobs in Nashville (laughs) and it was healthcare IT. (laughs) No, (laughs) music business was on there. Drummer was not. And I mingled with enough relatively famous drummers to know that even if you got a really sweet gig, it was not the money I wanted to make. So I saw healthcare IT in Nashville and the number one employer for that was HCA, Hospital Corporation of America. So I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to get myself in. And I found a guy looking for a job intern. So it was 30 hours a week, but technically like could get college credit and cash and lead to an actual full-time job. And funny enough, his son was a drummer. And so he really took to me. He's like, this girl's awesome. I want to help her and I want to really 
you know, take her through a journey of a career transition because I feel like I can make a big impact. And he still is a very, very good friend. So I went to work for a guy named Mike Adams and was like, I'm going to be an IT project manager. This is it. I'm going to be at HCA for 25 years. Like I found my future career and, you know, I can still play drums on the weekend. Well, fast forward a year and a half later, I realized I was a salesperson, not a project manager. Um, but it was still a great thing to have on my resume and opened a lot of doors to getting into IT sales. So was there, there's so many different directions I want to take this, but was there a, like a heartbreak? Uh, so is there some friction as you're making the change between being a drummer to having a career change? Like, is there a, like a, like a grieving process that you're going through as you're deciding that you're not going to be in music full time? Yeah, literally didn't take a gig for one whole year. And in order to fill the void of the time investment, I also took another part-time job as a manager of a Smoothie King. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I love, we love, love some yeah. Smoothie King. That's awesome. I didn't like necessarily need the money. Granted, it helped accelerate, you know, putting myself in a better financial position for other goals I had. But it was more like, I just need something to do on Thursday and Saturday afternoons, evenings, so I don't take a gig. So I can take a break from drums and do something. Okay. So you made a conscious effort like, hey, I'm going to not play drums. I'm going to take a full 12 months off. I'm going to take another job. I'm going to do a couple things to keep myself busy. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to be 12 months to be completely honest. When it started, it was just like drums isn't it and I'm sad and I just can't do it. <laughs> got, got it. Okay. So now you get, so now you get kind of, you go from project manager to sales. So talk about the, the, talk about the evolution of, I mean, it seems like you're making a couple big life, you're evolving, you're making a decision and then there's an evolution process that's happening in kind of three fell swoops. You're evolving from drummer to business person, from business person to project manager and project manager. Now you're in sales. So, so for do you me, know you're in sales? Like, did you want to be in sales? No. For me, every single scenario along the way, kind of like I was mentioning with Mike Adams bringing me into Hospital Corporation America, it was always a relationship-driven encouragement and door opening that I then decided to walk through. And probably the coolest one was the project manager to sales, especially because I had so convinced myself I was a PM. I was like, I'm going to get my PMP. I'm going to be at HCA forever. Like I was all in and I was in a band. The one gig I was willing to still keep was every Wednesday night with a friend of mine named Nate Dodd. And he was the CEO of a startup focused on tech in the Nashville area. And one day he just asked me to coffee and said, hey, can we talk about business stuff, which we hadn't really done much of because we really just been bandmates. And we went and got coffee. I still remember the Starbucks it was. And he's like, so I have this proposition for you. My head of sales is leaving. I know you've never sold before, but the first person that came to both of our minds, his and the head of sales, was me. <laughs> and they were like, you have the intangibles. You can do it. And of course, I also was at the time pretty cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and so all of that helped. He's like, well, what are you making as a project manager? He's like, cool, I can match that. Or actually, I think he beat it a little bit and give you a comp plan, which I obviously didn't know what that meant. And it had more upside. And he's like, and you get to kind of do whatever you want. I'm like, okay, this is risky. But I didn't see a really lucrative path where I was at. And I was like, you know, I trust Nate. I love his business. I think I can do this. Let's go. 
I would love to be on a fly on the wall. Now, did the VP of sales, he's not in the band too, right? No, but he was a guitar player. So he he definitely knew me as as my drummer alter ego. <laughs> That's all. Because I just love hearing like, what's your drummer doing? Like maybe she can sell for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we were like CrossFit a friends manager? too. So like there was all this just great relationship and friendship to it all that they were like, you know, who would kill this job? Rebecca. And I was like, well, that's cool. I wasn't meaning to like at all market myself as that. But I had two friends that saw it at me and were like, hey, we have an op for you. That's that's uh, that's awesome. So so how do you make the transition? How do you end up at Zoom? Yeah, that was a lot of other steps in between, <laughs> to be honest. But it was always, if I look back, relationship driven by somebody in my network that I never was really trying to get anything from, if that makes sense. They were people that sought me out that wanted to mentor me, that wanted to help me, that saw something in me more than I could even see at the time and wanted to bring me into the next scenario. So I went to a startup after the one that my friend was running. This startup was being run by another friend who was the president of the company. And he said, hey, come sell for me. You would kill it. I did. I was there for two and a half years till basically our grown-up competitor had a head of sales who for most of those two and a half years had been chasing me, <laughs> trying to co- convince me he had a better gig for me. So when the time was right, I was like, okay, it's time to go do this. The coolest part about that one is he put me on a plane 80% and that was like the biggest growth opportunity. Oh, being on the plane, before. being on the plane and traveling. Oh yeah. Exposure to a market outside of this little pond of Nashville that I knew, which then led to a job opportunity in the New York area that I was willing to reload for that had me focused on cloud and services. But again, following my network, a relationship opened the door, I took the job, killed it. Another job found me, killed it. And then ultimately one of my customers is who introduced me to zoom and they reached out to me as well. She said, Hey, uh, you would well, agree to this. So you are, well, okay. So I'm going to ask you about New York cause that's where you're at right now, right? You moved from Nashville, New York. Okay. So before we get there, so I thought about at one point, you mentioned that you have all these kind of these relationships that you haven't sought anything from, and they just have sort of popped up and really impacted your your life. And the the our so the podcast has really taken a turn. We really initially started on mental toughness, but what I found was that the audience and the listeners were kind of disjointed, so we changed. But early on, we had a guy named Rob Bell. And Rob wrote a book called um, The Hinge, which is basically about all these little moments, about these people in your life that pop up and change the direction of your trajectory of your life. But I've always found this really fascinating is these kind of like number two people that are in the story, right? So I heard a story one time about uh, Schultz, the Starbucks CEO. He is basically trying to take Star, you know, he's trying to buy Starbucks and this guy's trying to just bury him. And he ends up in the office of a, a prominent family and an attorney in the area who listens to his story and says, you know what? I know this guy. We're just going to go fix this and tells Schultz to stand up and they're going to walk out of the office and go get in front of this guy and fix the problem. The guy is Bill Gates's dad. So yeah. Bill Gates's dad has a significant impact in why Schultz owns Starbucks. It's a super fascinating, you know, super fascinating story. And I may have got some of the details wrong, but... They're basically this, 
this issue. He ends up in Bill Gates' dad's office. He's he's prominent big wig and decides they're going to fix this thing here and there. And that's why Schultz is CEO of Starbucks. So I love these kind of that's side cool. side people that impact your life, right? Yeah, and they're still um, great friends. I stay in touch. They're always like, what do you do now? How can I help? Some have asked me back. Some just make introductions for me. Um, that's, yeah. that's awesome. What do you like being in New York? I absolutely love New York. So obviously COVID stinks and the reality of every new wave and variant hits New York like square in the face. Yeah. <laughs> and your life goes from maybe you'll get to go have fun next week to everybody's canceling. So it's been a roller coaster from a social life perspective. But just being in the greatest city in the world, like, opens your mindset to the opportunity. And though it's not as tight-knit of a community as other places like Nashville or Phoenix, the people that you do connect with are all hustlers and people that are doing big things and focused on, you know, areas of their life that I'm interested in, which is mindset, business, sales, entrepreneurship. Those people are drawn to what New York has to offer. And then obviously to make it for very long, <laughs> you kind of have to have something going for you. So just the you know exposure I have to really interesting people here, when you walk down, you know, Manhattan, Times Square, you just dream bigger. You think about like the Rockefellers and Broadway and Lin-Manuel Miranda and all these cool things that people do that just like go after it. And it makes you kind of internally look at that and think bigger than what you would ultimately too just by the environment. That's that's so interesting. So when you're just out of curiosity, so when you think about, I mean, I think that's a good recap of how you how I would think about New York. What do you think about Nashville? Like what did you feel like the the community was like there? I mean, obviously very music driven, right? Oh so Nashville for me is home. Nashville for me is where I go to like step off the gas a little bit because I feel like I'm known there. And everybody is encouraging. They're not necessarily going to push you in certain areas like New York does, which is fine. But they're there to be your people, to be your network. They're the people that got me an opportunity to come to New York. And so for me, it's home. It's breathe. It's take a break. Understand the pace. You can get a meeting with anyone. (laughs) Everybody's super helpful and encouraging. But I can only do that at certain doses at a time anymore. Till I've got to go back and like, I want to get beat up a little bit again. Because you, you, need the, you need the adrenaline good. rush. Where, where'd the ambition? So you seem to be very ambitious. Where'd the ambition come from? Honestly, it's something that you probably wouldn't expect to hear, but it's the fact that I was homeschooled growing up and my parents had a very different view of education. And so starting at age five, my parents decided that I would be completely educated by them. They would handle the curriculum and they would set me on this path to graduate early and really get to be whoever I want to be and become very entrepreneurial because of that too, because I owned my education and it was like, what do you want to learn? What do you want to master? Go. And they just opened doors for that. So from like age 11 till I started college at 16, it was like, wake up for three hours and do your homework. All right. So we got to pump the brakes. So you, okay, so I was trying to do all the math. So as you're talking, I'm trying to do the math. I'm like, okay, she spent a decade. She got to be like, you know, what are you, like early 30s? 31. Okay, I'm guessing 32. I always joke I should be like, I can do weight and size. Like, that'll be my side gig at the state fair. 
So pretty close. So I'm like doing the math. I'm like a whole decade in Nashville. I'm like trying to put all these jobs together. Okay. Six, you graduated 16. So that's, that's, that's awesome. So you go straight to college. Yes, I did. And it was super easy. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, this is, this guy's got nothing on my mom. All right. How many kids were in your family? Uh, I was the oldest of four. Okay. And I was the firstborn. So yeah, I was the, I was the trial. So all my siblings went younger. Oh, all your siblings went to college younger. Correct. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. My Uh, sister in uh, Dallas is freak. And the fact that she even had a master's by 21. (laughs) That's so, that's so, that's so crazy. Now, did your dad own a business? Is that where the entrepreneur? He did not. So no, this is another funny thing that doesn't add up to who I am. My dad is super risk adverse. My dad is a work for the same company for 31 years, do your job, keep your head down, stay focused, but be really good at this one thing. So he has been with the same company in pretty much the same role for over 30 years and will retire with this company. Every time I call him with a new job and a new comp plan, I think I give him a heart attack. (laughs) But then he does my taxes, so it helps. (laughs) He's like, okay, she'll be okay. <laughs> oh man, that so that's that's amazing, dude. How crazy! So you you graduate, you go to college at sixteen. You said it was easy. Now was it? What made it? What made it? I mean, social. Like, what was it like being sixteen with a bunch of twenty year olds? Uh, they got a kick out of us, man. We were the teacher's pet because my sister and I were for the first year in classes together. Okay. And are you we twins went- or are you just close? No, for all intents and purposes, we were raised as twins. We're 13 months apart. Okay. And she's still my best friend. And so we always were a pair and everybody just, they ate us up. They thought, oh, you're so cute. And the little homeschool kids. Granted, they were familiar with young homeschool kids. So we weren't like a total anomaly to them. But they just were super. Because you went to a a Christian university. It wasn't like you went to like Arizona State or something, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and Arizona is actually one of the largest states for homeschooling. Really? So, yeah, it, people were very familiar with it. And I just remember, yeah, the teachers all loved us. And then a lot of the other kids would be like, you guys are kind of teacher's pets, which we weren't trying to. Right. We just showed up on time and did the work. Yeah, that's you're just like, do your work. <laughs> that's most of life is show up and do your work. So I want to I want to I want to click on that. Show up and do your work. I, I do think that's that's the biggest. I think that's one of the most important. Just show up and do your work. Mm hmm. There's not that. And it's, act like you want to be there. <laughs> not that hard. So yeah, have being a, engaged. Have a, my daughter, I don't know if she listens to this or not, but freshman at Purdue. Okay. Not showing up, not doing our work is what I believe is happening. But we got some not so stellar grades. And I was mm-hmm. like, hey, I cannot even comprehend what I'm looking at on this report card. Like all, literally all you have to do is go to class, show up to the TA assistant in, into the room, go to class, show up and say you're working. Those are the two things. You get a D. So like, I can't even comprehend what I'm looking at on this report card because those are the only two things you have to do to just pass. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's super, uh, super important life lesson. Just show up and do the, do the work. Oh, there's the funny story. I'll never forget. Cause the first year I was very engaged in actually going to class and participating. Once I figured out I could do it online and like have my life, I definitely was huge into that. But one of my first English classes, this teacher was known as a monster. Like everybody hated her, but somehow got in her good graces. And one time 
I was all into like my appearance and presentation or whatever. And so my paper was submitted with a pink staple. <laughs> and she gives back the paper and she goes, extra credit for the pink staple. I was like, and she literally did. I already had an A and I got an A plus because I had because a, you put a the, pink because staple. Because you put the, the staple. Because she just loved it. She was like, this girl cares. She's try- like, she cares about every detail and she tried. So you know what? You're going to have the best grade in the class. Now, was that something that, you know, when you're, when you're being homeschooled, I mean, what dis- did you feel like there were any disadvantages to being homeschooled? The only one is that I didn't get to do drumline. That's, that's cool. at okay. this point now, that's not even a thing. It just was back then they wouldn't allow homeschoolers to participate in drumline. Nowadays, you totally can't. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, at least here in Indiana, there's all kinds of, you know, all kinds Programs of different opportunities for, for, for homeschool kids. Huh. Super fast. So you're out of college by, tw- anyways, let's, I, I'm just only talking about this because I was trying to do all the math. You got my, you got my calculator all messed up trying to figure so, out. So, so let's talk, let's transition a little bit and let's talk about your, you know, let's talk about sales. Let's talk about your podcast and what you're, what you're doing and kind of the, the next phase of uh, your career. So I'll let you go ahead and, and you tell us a little bit about what you're doing on the podcast and, um, and if there's anything specific to about sales that you want to hone in on or that you really want to cover, yep. now's a great time to, to, to share. Absolutely. So I have a podcast called the Rebecca Panapinto Project, and it is undergoing a little bit of a transition as has my career in the last six, seven months. For nearly the first eight, nine years of my sales career, I was focused exclusively on selling some form of services which is very much a relationship sale, long sales cycle, but big dollar amounts. Been great. Absolutely loved it. But usually after the contracts close and it's handed over to service delivery, a lot of control that a salesperson <laughs> initially thought they had is no longer existent. And you're at the mercy of, will they deliver? And managing that relationship if it goes sideways. And so I did a lot of research when I was thinking about what was going to be next for me, really, you know, researching the Zoom opportunity specifically. And I said, I want to be in SaaS and I want to sell a product that's baked, that's super scalable and can have a consistent user experience for my end user. Now, were you losing, like, were you being, were you frustrated with the the service, like just feeling out of control? Oh yeah, I'm being fired when I didn't do anything wrong, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and having to apologize for other people's mistakes. Oh yeah, that's that's. So I always joke, and I'll maybe here towards the end I'll share how I got how 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 we got into this my line of work. But yeah, I mean that was I I realized really quickly that s- selling services was not a good fit for my personality. Like I could not handle that subjective. Services are subject. The whole thing's subjective, right? You can do a great job and still get a not so stellar grade. You can do everything you were asked to do and still not get the right, you know, the right outcome. Versus a product, you know, as long as it that they buy it for a certain job and it does that job that they think it's going to do, it's a whole lot easier to win. So I can I definitely definitely appreciate that. The interesting thing I'll say about selling product, though, that I'm learning is people aren't as open to a strategic relationship with the salesperson. And so I'm finding that balance in that, especially with Zoom, I mean, for so long we had a freemium model and 
you can go online and buy a ton of stuff and never have to talk to a salesperson. And I think people enjoy that. But the reality is they're not getting the full experience of what Zoom has to offer and all the different features we constantly have and different avenues and ways that our product is used that they're not going to get exposure to if they don't want to hear the use cases and they don't want to talk to a salesperson. So it's finding a balance between like, yes, I get it. You want to be able to cancel and not have to tell somebody you're canceling. But the more you can have a strategic conversation with your sales rep and with somebody who really wants to have my product enhance your business, then it can be a win-win. So I think there's a balance between the go-to-market for the two that can really make everybody's experience better and not get you kind of pigeonholed down being only reliant on the relationship, which happens a ton in services. Like that deal only happens because the person's there and then they leave. That customer is leaving that business too. And then the other side of the spectrum where it's like they never talk to a salesperson, they're completely self-sufficient, but they're using one avenue of what the product has to offer. So like somewhere in the middle there is a sweet spot for product, I believe. So Zoom is your first, I'm looking through your LinkedIn account. So Zoom's your first like product sale, right? Correct. Okay. I've always sold a product with my services, but they were definitely buying people. They were, buy, they were buying people. So let's talk a little bit about that because I think there's a huge huge difference. Like mm -hmm. just selling a service versus selling a product, you know, right out of the gate, I think about the demo, right? Like when you're selling a product, you can distance yourself pretty quickly. Like you're focusing on a tangible, right? Like, let me show you the product. Let me show you how it works. Let me show you how, versus when you're selling a service, like you are the product initially, right? Correct. So, so what, what kind I mean, let's just, they're obviously that most people here are going to be so, I, most of the listeners are going to be product listeners, but I think we probably also have some service people as well. So talk a little bit about, you know, just your 10 year history in selling services. What are some of the tips that you would give people in terms of selling services? And then we'll talk about product too. Yeah. Well, I loved it and I don't think it's something I'm going to completely avoid for the rest of my life. I, I think services are part of everything. And I mean, by running my podcast, for example, I'm in a form of a services business. So I still love it. I love the relationship sale. What I will say for services and why I think I was successful in each of the roles that I was is because I took what I call a long game approach. And I knew like if the customer was asking for a certain thing that we could not deliver, it was better for me to refer that business out than have a disaster. And then especially in one instance where I went from a little company to the bigger version of us, I then had an opportunity to call that person back and then service them as appropriate. And so for me, it was always long game, long game, long game. Like I would look at what I knew my company could or could not deliver and what they were wanting and make sure like my goal was to give them what they really wanted, not to close the fastest sale. I think what happens in the service, a lot of guys that sell service, there's a, there's a little bit, there's an ego, there's an ego associated with the sale and they get themselves into a situation where they can't, they can't say no. I think it's easier in a product scenario to say no, because it either does it or doesn't do it. Right. Not that you don't have software guys promising stuff that products don't do, but I think in general, you know, you either press a button and it, in service, there's some more that it's not like you're really selling yourself and people can get a lot of their self-worth in being able to say yes. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. We can do that. And uh, I think you got to be able to say no. 
or what I did was build a network that I thought could at least help them. And like, even if, you know, XYZ, who I thought could better serve my customer, couldn't, the fact that I made an introduction and I tried still had goodwill and still kept a door open for me and still helped this long game vision. Now, are you out there building relations? Are you out there making a conscious effort or of like, hey, I need to build relationships in these categories? Or are you just sort of picking up, collecting people along the way? Are you going to networking events and you're like, oh, I know this person. How are you building this network that you're referring people out to? Back then, it was very intentional. I was like, I serve these people and these people and they keep asking for this. How do I do this? And I had a really good partner in the time or in the business at the time that was helping build an ecosystem like that as well. It was for entrepreneurs. And it was like, okay, I handled the software element, but we could find people that could handle their marketing and their back office. And so we were building a good ecosystem that we could constantly help solve their problem one way or the other. Now it is a little less strategic in the fact that I just like to connect people and network and open doors for people. And it's definitely a lot broader because I don't think inside just this little Nashville bubble anymore. I think about the U.S., the world. And so now it's more keeping my own track of who I know, who can help, and becoming more situational. And when I make introductions so that, you know, I'm just continuing to invest in my network and my relationships with it being a little more organic. I love it. I think that's super, super important. I'm just, you know, consciously thinking about trying to build build a network of people that you refer too, because it does come back around. I mean, I've always felt like I know with our, our business, I, if we can't do something that's like, Hey, here's somebody else that can do it. It doesn't, it doesn't do us any good to get you in a spot where you're not, the client's not getting what they, what they want to solve the problem they have. What's the one thing you're just really passionate. It could be work. It could be uh, business. What's the thing that's keeping you ticking right now? I'm loving my show. It is so fun. It is a really cool way to build relationships, as I'm sure you're well aware. I love having interesting people on just to talk about what they love about tech and digital transformation. It's something I do on nights, weekends. Like it's just, it's so much fun. How, so tell, well, let's talk about that. So how do you come up with like what is the process in which you're like, you know, I'm gonna do, a, I'm gonna do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually have a link to a podcast that can help tell the story better than I am going to tell right now. But it actually came out of COVID. I joke and tell friends like COVID is to blame or COVID is to thank because I was in a really interesting, like dry relational season. And the fact that I went from, you know, two happy hours a day and networking all the time and then the city every day to everything's locked down. I'm in my tiny little apartment. And I was like, how am I going to maintain these relationships and how am I going to build upon these relationships? And I was actually in a mastermind event working with a mindset coach and it came to me like, videocast, let's go. And I just started reaching out to my network and people were overjoyed to be asked to interview. <laughs> it was really fun. It, it is really fun. So I started this podcast because we had brought a guy in, a marketing director in. And he had worked at Angie's List here in Indianapolis. And he said, hey, we should, you know, in the process, he talked about having a podcast. And so I'm like, yeah, great. Let's, let's, let's do it. And so initially when I did it, I really thought, or when we started it, I just thought I, I really had a misconception of what, what the outcome was going to be. So I thought we would just like, 
drive in just like revenue was going to be like falling out of the sky as we started doing interviews. Here's what I can tell you. It's been great for relationships, which has driven in some revenue, uh, a good amount of revenue. But the, the biggest thing is it just surprised me. The relational piece, I think, surprised me is like how well I've gotten to know people that I've had on the podcast and just how much fun, how much fun it is. I mean, it's a lot of fun just to hear people's stories. And, oh, I remember the other thing. The other thing that it did for us is that it really, from a marketing perspective, and I think this is probably one of the biggest takeaways it did from a company because of the companies putting on the podcast on my behalf, is that it just created a steady flow of content. So we didn't have to do a content calendar. We didn't have to sit out and come up with a 12-month plan. We didn't have to get in a room and, and come up with a big strategy. We just got on, got on the podcast, started having interviews and just create a steady flow of weekly content that goes out that gives you, gives you a pulse. So whether that's a personal pulse or a business pulse, it, it's not, it's not hard to do. I, I don't know if you did all yours. Did you do all your setup yourself or did you hire somebody? At the beginning, it was just me. Then about episode four, I came across a group that could help me, especially scale along the editing path because that was not oh so you're doing all your own you're doing all your own editing the first four episodes yeah (laughs) it was painful um so you just you just got google pulled up in one browser and you're just just one you're just cranking away i did it all in adobe actually oh Um, i i definitely challenged myself and i was like okay yeah this editing thing is gonna last about three weeks (laughs) that's probably i mean the biggest i mean having somebody else do the editing and I, I dev, it's worth having somebody else do it. If, yeah. So I outsourced pretty quick and then now have this great strategic relationship with Salescast. So they're helping me take it to another level too. That's awesome. Well, this was a great, you know, this was a great time here this afternoon. I'm so glad that we had you on. Is there any, is there anything you wanted me to ask you that I didn't ask? Is there anything you were like, really want to talk about? And you're like, Hey Brad, you just didn't ask me the. Maybe just a little bit more on the product stuff. All right, like what shoot. What's, yeah, tell, tell me a little bit. So, so tell, so just, you mean in terms of like how you sell a product versus a service or just more about Zoom itself? Well, so Zoom, I wouldn't count as a real product sell because like I don't do demos because everybody knows what Zoom is, if that makes Interesting. sense. So it's this weird hybrid of I'm actually selling something everybody knows. <laughs> but I'm helping them look at it in a different way. And so when somebody comes in, oh, okay, let me not skip because I'll get asking you a bunch of questions. Stay on the product stuff. What you, so, so you sort of sent a lead there like, hey, ask more about the product. What, so, so what specifically, just like how the selling of a product or mm-hmm. yeah, talk a little bit more about that. How, how to bring both worlds together, services and product. And I think that has to do with the market I serve too. So I've been exclusively an enterprise seller this whole time too. I mean, I had a, a brief stint where I was helping entrepreneurs do like MVPs and you know mobile apps, but still the way I was actually hitting my number was by selling to the enterprise. And the enterprise buys different than somebody who goes and buys 10 licenses of X on a website. And so there's this balance of, Every once in a while, I'll do a demo, but it's not honestly what closes the deal for me. 
it's helping people understand how the product changes business and how the product changes their job or their career path and how it makes them a hero of whatever scenario they're in. And that's really the sweet spot of how I can get into accounts and convert accounts to be like exciting revenue generation for me is by helping somebody realize like way more than a widget, how this product enhances their business and has the services component and this relationship component in me that they can call me to help them ideate and, you know, think of the art of the possible. So that ultimately it leads to, you know, increase in licenses purchased and increase in the portfolio. Yeah. I, you know, one of the downside, you know, I'm going to use Zoom as example, you know, and, and we'll call it product led growth for this. You might disagree that that's what it's called, but I'm going to call it that. This idea or marketing led growth, right? This idea that Zoom has really captured the mind and and the bad thing that everybody knows what Zoom is, is not only they knew what Zoom is, they don't know what it is because they've already pre-described in their mind, they've already created uh, what problems they think it solves, what they can do with it. And I think that's a challenge. I know my personality, I had a demo with a guy on a, on a marketing account-based marketing product. And I thought I knew everything about it. And I just want to get to the price. And he did such a good job of getting me to like step back and calm down. Cause my, my initial reaction is like, Hey, I already, look, I already went to your website. I already did all the research. I've already looked at all the products. I know every, I know more about your product than you know about your product. And I may have, I don't know, but he did a good job of getting me step back and then got me into really trying to, trying to calm me down. But that's a downside of a, of a, of a geared up client, right. Or a prospect is that they draw their own conclusions. Oh yeah. Uh, it goes back to this long game that I like. Like I could just take somebody's incoming call to sell 10 licenses, sell 10 licenses and move on. But if I go, hold on, what's the use case? What do you need? Does webinar functionality make sense for you too? Does everybody have a phone? All of a sudden my cell became way more strategic and meaningful than just responding to, you know, incoming ask and like selling a widget. That's just, I'm not in the game of selling widgets. I want to sell an experience. Now, is it natural for you to ask questions? Oh, very much so. And where do you think, where do you think that came, where do you think that, you think that's just like an eight personality build to be inquisitive? Um, Not necessarily because I honestly see it in all my siblings too. I think it's a way we were taught to learn. Do you and feel like were they were they encouraging you to ask why? Oh yeah, and and get to the bottom of becoming an expert at whatever was of interest, and that learning was a forever thing, not just like pass the test. That is, I think, the biggest downside to public education is learn what you need to pass the test and then forget it. No, until I got to college, I probably had two actual standardized tests. <laughs> really? Okay. So how's mom decide that you get to go through the next, the next stage? Like, or are there, there are no stages. It, it was very fluid. It, it okay. definitely wasn't like, okay, yeah, you're, I don't even, I'm going to botch this even cause I don't even know, but you're 12. So you're in seventh grade. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so you, no, yeah, you got it. now right. you, now you go to eighth grade math. That was never it. It was like, I could be ninth grade math when I'm 12, but I'm, you know, maybe a grade behind in grammar because I haven't mastered that yet. So it was more showing mastery in the content and the curriculum to then be able to advance. And it was just, it was super fluid. It's like, okay, time to get you the next math book. 
That's awesome. So I know one, you know, David Ogilvy says the good ones just know more, you know, and I think that that basically the idea to be able to be, and I think you learned that, right, is that, and you're experiencing that at all your jobs is that you're taking this idea that you learned from homeschool to, to master stuff and you just know more than everybody else does. So you inevitably are jumping to the top. Whether and, that's and just growth mindset too. Like if you read Carol Dweck's books, there's a closed mindset that thinks that it's a fixed trait and thinks like, you know, once you get to a certain stage, you know what you're going to know. And if you have a growth mindset, it's like, mm, no, if I want to have a career pivot in three years and I decide something super interesting, I can go learn it. And over a certain period of time, I can become one of the best in the world at it. It's just, do you want it? And will you go get the education? Well, I don't think so. I, I, I don't know where I heard. So there's a podcast I listened to called the Founders Podcast. I don't know if you ever heard that. The guy who reads biographies. Okay. It's great. It's oh, fun. Cool. I mean, Founders it's a little bit like, you know, I, I think it's the greatest thing ever, but I've referred it to some people that aren't entrepreneurs and they feel like it's a lecture, but he basically reads books. Uh, he's read about, I don't know, 200 some books on entrepreneurs. And he just brings out the, the key entrepreneurial components of the book. So he does a great, does a great job, but I forgot what I was going to say. Anyways, listen to the podcast. I was going some. I was going somewhere with it, but I got, I got tied up in the details. So I can't. I can't remember. Get the. I'd listen Founders to it if podcast. I were you. It's great. It's phenomenal. It's David. Probably Sinra. like how I built this by um gay. Uh, what's his name? Guy Ryan. Guy Raz. Yeah. 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 That's a great it, one too. Yeah. If you like that, then you'll probably like David Sinra and the Founders Podcast. So it's it's great. So. All right. Well, that, Rebecca, this was awesome. This was a great, this was a great time. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. As always, uh, if you want more information on the podcast, go to monsterconnect.com forward slash podcast. Uh, you can get last season's, uh, last year's episodes. You can get all the new episodes for this year. And as always, remember, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can. Until next time.